Hi, everybody. Hello. I'm going to mess this up just a little bit. My name is Beverly, and I am an alcoholic. Hi. It's good to be here. Um, I am grateful to be sober. Um, my sobriety date is September 3rd, 1979, and that's because of my sponsor, my higher power, and this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to thank Terry for asking me to come speak and all of you today that have made it uh, a lot of fun um, for being strange to this area I feel like I have some friends and I felt like I was at home as at home as you can feel and I've had a great time so far today and I'm grateful to be here with you and uh, now it's where I get to earn my keep and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like for me hopefully end up telling you how I got here of all places because I didn't plan to get here and uh, share with you what life has been like in recovery. Um, I grew up the oldest of seven kids. We were in an Irish Catholic family, and we had a lot of fun. And uh, I thought it was normal. Um, there was a lot of drinking going on. There was a lot of things to celebrate. You know, we had a lot of baptisms, uh, a lot of moving parties, uh, you name it. And uh, it was just a normal part of life for us. Um, I remember drinking from my earliest recollection. Not getting drunk until later on, but I'll tell you about that. But just alcohol. It was kind of like Kool-Aid in our house. And I loved it. Um, being the oldest of seven kids, we all had choices, you know, in how we were growing up in this family. And I made some oddball choices. I never felt like I fit in. I never felt like I was a part of. Um, I constantly did things extra just to feel like I might measure up and be okay. And when you're the oldest of seven and you got a lot of things going on, there was a lot of opportunity for me to get out there and pitch in so I could get those pats on the back. And I don't know about you, but I needed a lot of pats on the back. I needed a lot of that recognition so that I get that sense of, I really am okay, even if it was just for a minute. And so I became an overachiever early, early on. And when I went to school, I couldn't get B's because that wouldn't be the best. And I had to be the very best. And I, I proceeded to get straight A's. Now, I didn't learn a lot getting straight A's, but I got the A's on the paper. And I needed that report card to show you to say, see me, I'm okay. Because what was inside wasn't okay. But if I could show you things on the outside, I had this piece of paper that said I'm okay. If you got a 98% and I got a 96%, my 96% meant nothing. It took away everything. I had to be on top and I had to overachieve and I had to have all of that recognition so that I might be okay. My parents didn't do that to me. My brothers and sisters didn't do that to me. My surroundings didn't do that to me. And I hear a lot of that today. And if that's, you know, if that's the choice you want to make, that's great. But for me, I made those choices. I started out doing that kind of stuff to myself. I don't know where I picked it up. But what I believe is that was my ism, just waiting to be filled up, just waiting to happen. Um, my first recollection of drinking to the point that I was absolutely drunk um, was when I was in the third grade. And the, 
My kids are well past third grade, and I would be just appalled if I thought that they had done the same thing. But uh, we had financial good times, and we had financially bad times. And you could tell if it was a good or a bad time by the bar that we had. And at this particular time, we were doing homemade wine. So we were not particularly doing well off at, at this point in time. But we waited for that balloon to go down. You know what that is. And when that balloon went down, the wine was ready. And for dinner, for some reason, I don't know what we were celebrating, but every one of his kids got to have a glass of wine. There were seven of us. I was the oldest. I liked it, and I asked for another one. And I was able to have a second glass of wine. And then, being the responsible adult child that I was, I cleared the table and got ready to clean up dinner. Turns out that nobody else liked their wine. You know what I did. I wouldn't throw that down the sink. I mean, why waste good wine? So I finished everybody else's wine off, loaded the dishwasher, and by the time everything was cleaned up, I was feeling wonderful. I was feeling the best I had ever felt. And nobody had to tell me what to do next. I knew intuitively, get more. And I got more. And I snuck into the refrigerator and I stole as much wine as I could drink. As it turns out, my mom was asleep on the couch. Now, today I could probably tell you she was passed out, but I didn't know that at the time. I could not get up the stairs to go to my bedroom to get to school the next day. So I kind of had a, a bad first drunk. But I knew what to do because I'd watched television. And so I stole the instant coffee, locked myself in the bathroom, and proceeded to start sobering myself up. That's really kind of how my drinking career went from the first drunk on. I drank as much as I could, as long as I could get away with it, because I loved what it did to me. I felt wonderful. No more was that feeling of inadequacy, the feeling that was just free-falling there for me that I had somehow picked up that nobody had given to me. It was gone. I didn't have to worry about what you thought about me. I didn't have to worry about fitting in. I didn't have to worry about what I needed to do. I just felt okay. And I'll tell you what, for somebody who'd been looking for that all their life, this was great news. And I proceeded to drink as often as I could. And in the type of family I grew up in, there were a lot of opportunities to do that. Lots of opportunities. And in a family where everybody's drinking, nobody was watching the lines on the bottles. And if they were, they thought somebody else was doing it. They didn't think I was doing it. And so I got away with it. Um, I absolutely loved what alcohol did for me. For a long time, I paid no consequence. For a long time, I didn't see what my alcoholism was doing to me. And I had a great time. But I went on, and I still did not naturally fit in with you when I was not drinking. Um, I could not play with the kids. I was a loner. I was naturally a book reader, off by myself, thinking, ooh, that's a dangerous thing to do. Um, we started moving around a lot, and so I had a chance for a lot of geographical cures. And I loved it. And we as a family always thought that this time it was going to be better. This time we're going to make a million bucks. This time we're going to go to Disney World. And I believed it every time. I wanted the easier, softer way. I believed that was what was going to happen. But you know what? Every time we went there, we came with us. Every time, the problem followed us. And uh, it was crazy. Um, after that, I, anything that worked, I did to excess. 
Um, anything that I could do to escape reality, I did. Food can be an escape for me from reality. I love to eat. Men are an escape from reality. I love men. I began to start looking for the guys in my life. The men were going to make it okay. Um, you name it, it was going to happen. I, I took any drug that was offered my way. I used and abused anything. Um, people got very tired of me. I don't know how to explain that the relationships just got old. People got I used people up. I was a drain on people. I don't want to be like that anymore. But we, I always thought that it wasn't my fault. Things were kind of getting good at one point in time in my life. I kind of thought we were getting it all together. My dad was an insurance salesman, and we were moving to Kansas, of all places. And uh, I was not particularly thrilled. And in Kansas, uh, we decided to, to start trying out different churches. And uh, we were going to find God. We found this particular church, and uh, I was very active. Um, my, my dad had bought my mother this huge mansion to make everything okay. And we had arrived. Everything was okay. And when I went to church, we started going to Sunday school. We started going to church every week on Wednesdays, you name it. And my Sunday school teacher took a particular liking to me. And I was in the eighth grade at this time, and he was in his mid-40s. And we began having a relationship. That is not something I'm proud of today. But I tell you this because I was willing to give up any piece of integrity I had if it made me feel okay at the time. Now, this particular man was kind of driving up and down my street, and I was afraid my mom and dad were going to find out that we were having this relationship. And, uh, thing, you know, the heat was on, and I didn't like the heat being on. And my folks said, uh, we're going to move back to Iowa. And I was grateful. It's like, get, let's get the hell out of Dodge, you know. Let's get out of here before I'm busted. And so we moved. And at this course of time, we had uh, lost this home in Kansas to foreclosure. And the reason I'm telling you this is because when we lost this house, when I am unhappy, I like to make everyone around me unhappy. I like you to suffer right along with me. And I was very cruel to my father. And I said some very cruel things. And later on in life, we both were sober together. And he told me, he said, Beverly, if I'd have had a gun that night, I'd have, I'd have ended it all. Because I want you to know how cruel I can be. I want you to know what I'm capable of. And I was very capable of hurting you with my words. And I knew my limitations. I could not beat you up physically. So I would tear you apart verbally. And this is the way it went. And so we moved back to Iowa, and I started getting my stuff together. And uh, I, I was drinking all the time. Um, one of the worst things I did is that I would babysit and drink. And I would go to other people's houses, and I would babysit. And I would drink beforehand. This one time, my first experience with vodka, I thought I'd have a tumbler of vodka to calm down before I went and babysat, because it's a tough job. And it was one of those, I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't have crystal glasses. We had those jelly jars, you know, that after the jelly's done, you save them and you use those glasses. So I had one of those glasses of vodka. Five, ten minutes had gone by and nothing had happened. So I thought I should have some more. And so I had another three-quarters of that glass that I was stealing at home before I left. And then all of a sudden, you know, vodka has this funny thing about it that 
you don't know that it happened until you try to move. And I couldn't move. And uh, I, I hope those kids were okay, but they just had to kind of fend for themselves. That was my first experience with vodka, and that, that was my very favorite uh, alcohol of choice. But I was not picky. I would take anything. Um, I was somebody that I could drink early, but I was not carded. I could get in just about anywhere. And that was great power in that. I loved going out and doing that. I have never drank of legal age. I got sober before I was of legal age. <laughs> um, 21 rolled right by. Um, but I was a sneak and a cheat and a thief early, early on, and it did me well. Anyway, through this course of time in Iowa, I was really busy into things are going to make me okay. I always was somebody that was, had the extra 10 or 15 pounds on that I was carrying. And do you know that doctors will give you prescription speed for weight control? I loved it, and I needed it, and it became something that I had to have in order to function. So I would take speed during the day and make it through work or whatever I was doing and then drink at night and try to come down a little bit and relax and then just pass out and go to sleep. That's pretty unmanageable for a 16-year-old. You know, that's an unmanageable life. I didn't know any other way to cope. There was no other way out there in my mind. I had tried everything else. I had it all together, getting ready to be prom queen and you name it. I want to tell you the school probably had 20 of us. But I was at the top of that 20. And my dad said, we're moving to Omaha, Nebraska. And I thought, what are we doing going to Omaha, Nebraska? And at this time, I decided that I would punish them, and I didn't speak to them. Now, I did not speak for a day or so. This went on for weeks and months of not speaking. It's hard not to talk for that long. That takes conscious effort. But I did it. And so, of course, what happened is I started going to psychiatrists, school counselors, ministers, priests, uh, Sarpy County Center for Mental uh, Health, Nebraska Psychiatric Institution, and, of course, the infamous mom and dad talks. You have so much potential. What you have is an attitude problem. If you could just change your attitude, things would be okay. I didn't know how to explain to them that there was no attitude change possible. I was kind of locked like this prisoner inside myself that I could not get out. I couldn't change my attitude. And the only way that I had an attitude change was chemically. And that's when it felt good. And through the psychiatrists and psychologists, my visits, what I learned from them is they never asked me how much I drank. You know, back in the late 70s, it hadn't become this big thing yet. That was in the early 80s. They didn't ever ask me if I, if I drank or if I took drugs or what I was doing. And I told them that it was my rotten parents, that they had moved me around into 13 houses in 10 years, and that we had filed bankruptcy three times, and I'd seen our furniture repossessed, that I hid the keys to the cars when the repossessions came along to take our car away, that it was all these rotten things, that it wasn't my fault. And you know what? They bought it. And they told me I needed to learn how to relax. If I could just relax, things would be okay told me to picture a meadow and then start with my toes and relax my toes and move on up. The only way I knew how to relax my toes was to go out there and drink. But they could help me with what I gave them. 
So I was still miserable living in Nebraska. Couldn't go to school. Um, thought about suicide. Didn't have the guts to do it. Uh, tried once throwing my face in my pillow and letting all the breath out. And it, you know, kind of a chicken way of doing it. And then when I couldn't breathe, you know, just <gasps> came back up for breath. I used to pray, don't let me wake up in the morning. Just don't let me wake up. You know, that's where my alcoholism took me. And so I came up with my own solution. What I decided to do uh, was uh, lose some weight and find a man, and my life would be okay. And so I went on a Miller Light and Speed diet, <laughs> and it worked. Um, I don't recommend it, but it did work. I also exercised at that point in time, and I've never exercised since then. But speed will do that to you. And uh, I found a man. I was working in a nursing home as a nurse's aide. And this guy came, and he was visiting his grandmother. And uh, uh, I decided he was the lucky guy. He didn't know it yet. And we started dating. I was... Uh, not quite 17, and he was in his early 20s, and I liked it that way. And I got him to the point that we were house shopping. And then all of a sudden, I came out of work one night because I worked until 11 p.m., and I had a note on my windshield wiper. I don't want to see you anymore. Now, I really hadn't done anything to this guy. But, you know, I drained people. You know, I, I just, people just got tired of me. I was expensive to be around emotionally. I was taxing. And I think he knew intuitively that he wasn't going to be enough, that he couldn't do what I wanted him to do. So my last drunk was uh, feeling sorry for myself because this guy had dumped me. And it was on a Labor Day. And I was drinking beer to beat the band. And my mother, of all people, came up to me and she said, Beverly, we have a problem with alcohol and we need to go to a meeting. And I thought, what is she talking about? All I got to do is figure out how to get Tom back in my life and things are going to be okay. But that good girl thing kicked in in me and I thought my mom needs to get to a meeting. And if I go, she'll, I'll get my mom to a meeting. And so I went with her to her first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. My first meeting was on a Monday night. I went there with no belief that I was an alcoholic. I went there with no intention to stay sober. I didn't believe the steps were going to work in my life. I didn't come to get your deal. I came to go one time. The miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened and I didn't know it. Um, things began to come true in my life that I wasn't even ready to have happen. And I liked the meeting. The people were friendly. They acted like they were happy to see me. Um, they weren't sad. They weren't figuring out how to get out of problems. They had a solution going in their world, and it was an attraction. Now, I'd like to tell you that I kept coming back because I wanted to get well, but what happened was is that I just bought a new wardrobe to go back to school, and I thought I'd model for a while. So I modeled for a while. I kept coming to your meetings and trying on a new outfit. I was one of those people that I could not sit down in an entire meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to get up in the middle and model for you. And then my sponsor figured that out and told me to sit down and shut up. That was very good for me, but I didn't like it. I had a sponsor appointed to me. I didn't get to go shopping for a sponsor. She came up to me and she said, I'm your sponsor. And I was afraid to tell her no. 
She'd been sober forever. She'd been sober three years at that time. And I did a lot of things because I was afraid. I went to meetings because I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't. I went to the restaurant and had coffee after the meeting because I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't. I started taking the steps in my life because I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't. And in a month or so, I loved this program, I loved recovery, and I was afraid that I was going to find out that I was too young and I shouldn't be here, that you were going to figure out that I shouldn't be here, that I don't belong, and I would have to give this thing up. Finally, I started telling people about that, and they said, no, 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 Beverly, don't worry about that. We'll let you know. Just keep coming back to meetings. And I kept coming back to meetings. And uh, I got sober on September 3rd, and I met this guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. Amazing. And we were in a very, very comfortable relationship by the time it was Halloween. Nobody had told me not to yet, and we had. And we got married before I was one year sober. Those things don't always happen, but they happen for us. And, the, and we're still married today. And for the most part, we've been happily married. The only times that we haven't is when one of us has gotten in the way. But the reason that it has succeeded to this point is because of active sponsorship in both of our lives. Of and by myself, I would have ruined it. Of and by myself, I had nothing to bring into a relationship. But we got married in, in June, and I had a year of sobriety that following September. And I was in a hurry to get life done. I wanted the white picket fence, the house, the husband, the kids, two cars, all those things. And uh, we were happy in recovery, active Alcoholics Anonymous, going to five, six, seven meetings a week, sponsoring people, being sponsored, living and working with steps, having a home group. Um, and I got pregnant. We had our first son, and my mother had had seven kids like this was nothing. So I thought Cinderella Beverly, you know, it's going to be no big deal. And uh, Matthew was born, and every my husband had left the hospital to go to an AA deal that was going on that night. And they woke me up and said that probably my son wouldn't live through the night and that I should call my husband. And it was a very desperate time at three years of sobriety. Um, I'd like to tell you that, you know, I just had all of these wonderful feelings and they told me that I should go into the intensive care unit and that I should hold my son. And my first reaction was, how dare he be sick after I just went through labor and delivery? I don't want to not have anything for this. And my second reaction was, I don't want to hold something and get to know and care about something that I'm going to lose. And my sponsor was around. And I took those actions that I didn't believe in or that I was afraid to take. And uh, for the first time in my life, I had a choice in how I was going to react. My sponsor told me at that time that I can either choose to blame God for what had happened in my life, or I could choose to believe that what had happened to my son was just purely an act of nature at random and choose to have the power, the higher power in my life carry me through this. Now, of and by myself, I have chosen to blame God. That was my nature. And I chose to believe that this was just simply an act of nature at random. It wasn't a punishment to me. This wasn't a big rotten God in my life. And chose to believe that a God of my understanding could carry us through it. Alcoholics Anonymous just surrounded us at this point. 
And uh, every day that he lived, or every hour that he lived, was like surviving a day in adult life. And uh, they told us that the best we could hope for is that he would, uh, if he survived, that uh, he would be uh, brain damaged, deaf, um, and not have small motor functions. My son Matthew today is 15 years old. Um, uh, he is not deaf. He hears way too many things that we'd rather not have him hear. And uh, uh, he's a very intelligent kid today. Um, I was speaking a couple years ago, and I was just overcome with tears because I was talking about how Matthew played the piano, and I never realized what this, that that was the small motor functions that he wasn't supposed to have. And I mean, he plays wonderfully. Um, and so things can happen, and they can turn out okay. And they, for us, did turn out okay. But we, I had to make those choices with no guarantee. I didn't know the outcome at that time. And I learned a lot of valuable things about sobriety when this happened to Matthew. They told me when I was a newcomer, go to the same meeting. Monday night, go to your Monday night meeting. Tuesday night, go to your Tuesday night meeting. And I thought, why? You know, I want to be the social butterfly and flit here and flit over there and visit you and visit this place. But what that meant is I wouldn't set down any roots. You wouldn't know in my eyes if I was having a good day or a bad day. And I needed those roots three years later, not as a newcomer, but three years later. Because when I brought Matthew home from the hospital, I didn't want to go to meetings. I wanted to stay home and take care of this kid. You know, I wanted to be this, you know, wonder mom and not have anything happen to him. But, you know, they would know if I didn't show up for Monday night. They would know if I didn't show up for Tuesday night. And so I got to my meetings. And Matthew survived. But of and by myself, I wouldn't take those actions. So those things that my sponsor had asked me to do as a newcomer that I thought were stupid or why don't they make sense or what's the big deal, I never know when I'm going to need them later on in my recovery. I never know when it's going to be of importance or an impact to me because I want to stay here one day at a time for the rest of my life. They taught me how to sponsor other people, that I had to give this thing away in order to keep it. And I wanted this book on sponsorship before I would take a shot at it. You know, I wanted to guarantee that I don't look stupid, that I don't look dumb, you know, that I don't do it wrong. And they just said, you just got to try. And so I started sponsoring other people. And, you know, I le you learn something out of every experience. And the first couple of three, four girls that I sponsored, they would not, they did not stay sober. And I went to uh, this guy who was very instrumental in, in my sobriety, and I said, how come they're not staying sober? What am I doing wrong? And he said, Beverly, you don't have that much power. God's smarter than that. He's given you these to practice on. You know, they'll stay when they're ready to stay. And I learned something about the grace of God during that time frame. And, you know, people can't really tell me. i got to see it, these things that I learned in my life. And I saw these girls that I would help uh, try to sponsor, and I really loved them. And they were, you know, they were just like me, sometimes a little worse, sometimes not quite as bad as I was. And they'd go away. And I think, why'd they go away? They could have stayed like I'm staying. But that grace of God is there for anybody who wants to pick it up. I just had to want to pick it up. And I couldn't pick it up for them. And I can't pick it up for anybody else but myself. But that grace of God is there if I'll pick it up. And i got to hang on to it by taking these actions. You know, the steps are just a, a wonderful thing as far as cleaning up my past. And I had a lot of past I had to clean up. 
It wasn't until I'd been sober a while that my mind started clearing from all of the damage I had done and the chemicals I had taken. And I was in the middle of an AA meeting, and I had this terrible memory. And suddenly it was time to take a fourth and fifth step. Um, because I had remembered that while I was out there working as a nurse's aide, that uh, this elderly lady who could not talk was not getting out of bed fast enough for me because it was my job to put her in a wheelchair and take her down and uh, get her to dinner. And after I got these people down to dinner, I could have my break. And at that point, I had some alcohol in my locker and I was going to have a little nip or two. And so I whipped her out of her bed and her leg got caught in the bed rail and I broke it. And I didn't tell anybody. That is extremely self-centered. That is extremely full of self-will. And do you know what my first thought was? Did anybody see me? Am I going to get caught? And I didn't tell anyone. And this lady could not speak. And for two days she went on, people moving her in and out of a wheelchair before somebody found her broken leg. And at that point it was fractured in three places. Sometimes you can never fully right the wrongs that you've done. That's been my experience. But that's the power of denial in this program. Man, if I didn't want to deal with it, it was back there. I just shoved it back. I got busy, didn't think about it until I got sober. And the steps work in my life. I got to clean those things up. I got to make my amends. I got to get honest with myself. I had to look at those things. And I hope that I'm not ever that completely self-aware and self-centered again. That is what I'm capable of. And I need to understand that. I've had to share that with a lot of people uh, in my sponsorship. And I've been given so much back by helping others. You, you know, you try to give something back and you get a little bit more without even looking for it. And what I got was a relationship with my dad. And he got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we just had a great time. And he came to live with us for a little while. And I got to do little things for him. Cook him dinner. Um, let, let him get to know my kids. And things were going along pretty good. I had 10 years of sobriety, and I'd gone to an early meeting, because you go to a meeting on your anniversary. At least that's our tradition. And on Sunday, there was not any true night meeting, so I had to get up and go to this god-awful early meeting. And uh, so I got up at like 8 o'clock in the morning, got home around 10 o'clock that day, and I had one of the new girls I was sponsoring sitting in my living room. And it took me a couple hours to figure out that she was waiting for me to remember that she had three months of sobriety that day. So I finally remembered that she had three months, and then she left, and I went back to take a nap. And uh, I thought about my dad. My dad had been uh, very ill for a while, and I couldn't fall asleep. I thought, well, I'll call my dad, and I'll tell him thank you for participating in my life and, and uh, sharing with me on my anniversary. And so I called, and, and there was no answer at his house. And uh, there had been no answer lots of times. But for some reason, I couldn't get settled with this. And I don't believe I have ESP, but I do believe that as the result of the steps, as the result of living in Alcoholics Anonymous, that if you let somebody get to know you and you get to know somebody, that there is an intuition every now and then. You know, we can get to know each other. And I went out and told my husband that I wanted to go drive by and see if my dad was okay. And so I left the house, and I was thinking to myself, when I pull up, I don't want his car to be there, because that means he's gone. And when I pulled up, his car was there. And as it turns out, my dad had died in his sleep that night. And that was on my 10-year birthday. 
I learned so much through the loss of my father. A lot of it was just sad. A lot of it was just normal grief that you go through when you lose somebody. But I was at a point in time in my recovery and in my own personal life growing up in Alcoholics Anonymous that things had become very, very important to me. What I had was who I was. And you know what? There was a black hole in my gut that could never be filled up from the loss of my dad. And his material things fit in boxes. And the goodwill didn't want them. You know? That's not what this is all about. But I wouldn't have learned it that way. And I had to learn it through the loss of my father and knowing that I didn't care about what he had. I missed who he was. And hopefully I can remember that on some days that I'm just not so dang busy that I don't have time to talk to you. That I can be one of many and not so busy out there trying to get things and do things to be somebody. So I, get, I easily get diverted over here. So, you know, they say at 10 years, man, 10 years is tough. It's a tough time. I thought, I'm not going to have a tough time at 10 years. I like to prove people wrong. And so I waited, and I got really sick at 14 years of sobriety. I showed them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had to go back and work the steps again in my life to become a vibrant person. And I had a secret in sobriety. I had a secret at 14 years. And after I had the secret, I thought, well, it's too late to tell my sponsor now, you know, because I didn't tell her before. So I kept the secret for about a year. And I finally, you know, that'll eat away at you. They say in my home group, you're as sick as your secrets. Well, I was getting pretty sick. And I thought, well, but my case is different. If you really understood about me, you would understand that, you know, this wasn't really my fault. But I don't want to fess up to anybody because that meant I would have to clean it up. And so I kept praying to God, give me an answer, give me an answer. And finally, I fessed up to my sponsor. And you know what? She still loved me. She still loved me. And I tell you that at 14 years of sobriety, you can make a mistake. You can falter as a human being because I did. And you can still live and stay sober and be one among many in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't want to go anyplace else. This is where I want to stay. I've been sober for 18 years. That amazes me. I never did anything for any consistent period of time. I never stayed with you long enough to clean it up. I always cut and ran away. And I've been sober now longer than I was alive when I got sober. That's amazing to me. That's amazing. Of and by myself, I'd have screwed it up a long time ago. If you let me do it my way, it'd have been messed up. But what I learned from this 16 years of sobriety is you work the steps. I had to realize again that my life was unmanageable and that I was powerless. That sobriety and length of time doesn't mean that I am perfect, doesn't mean that I am above the rules, doesn't mean that I don't have to work the steps in order to clean it up. I had to take a fourth and fifth step. I had to go out there and make amends. Oh, I hated becoming willing. I didn't want to do it. But you know what? I've learned again. I've learned again. Um, I have raised my kids in sobriety. I have gone to work full-time in sobriety. And the only thing that I want to share with you is that it's possible to do it. It's possible, and it's a better life than what I could have chosen. I came from a destiny that would not be here. We were users of people. We couldn't stay in one house for much more than nine months. We couldn't be anything but losers. That's what we were. That's what I grew up with. So many of my brothers and sisters today I'm very sad for because they didn't find the solution. I chose to grab onto it. I do it sometimes very well. Other times the best I do is I don't drink today. But I can keep doing it one day at a time. 
with you in the solution of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have to go through anything alone anymore. I don't ever have to live like that again. I don't ever have to break somebody's leg. I don't ever have to be afraid, am I going to get caught? That is a freedom. My kids today, they have been around Alcoholics Anonymous so much that somebody that I sponsor will call home and I'm out and they'll say, are you okay? Do you need to talk? <laughs> somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous works at, worked at an elementary school that my daughter went to. And some girls were kind of uh, having a bad time. And my daughter said to them, hey, what's the solution in this? You know, it, it just rubs off that hopefully I can give my kids something that I didn't have to give them. That's because of recovery. I go to four meetings a week. I go to conferences. You know, I, I register for a conference, and I'm the registration chairman, and I'll have people come up to me and complain that they have to register their child. You know, I dropped my kids off on a Friday night and didn't pick them up till a Sunday afternoon. Threw them 80 bucks or whatever it was for babysitting. It can be done. And I was, that's not like we were financially flush. You know, we were still charging Pampers on the Visa card. So, you know, it's not like we had tons of money. We were living on macaroni and cheese. But as long as I have kept Alcoholics Anonymous first in my life, anything is possible. Anything is possible. I am a happy person. I'm an alcoholic who should be drinking and I'm sober. I'm a mother who's loved by her two kids. For the most part, my 15-year-old isn't always impressed. Um, he will again someday. I'm happily married today. I just left a 13-year job and I didn't have to quit. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have to. It was a choice. Um, and I've chosen more of a step down. I've chosen something a little lighter in my life. And that's a big thing for this ego to let go of, because I like to be top dog. Um, we just recently had a friend of ours in my home group pass away, and he was 39 years old. And I've told you kind of about my life and my past and what's gone on, and, and there, are, there are things that I will never be able to fully write and I know that today. But this man, the day before he passed away, it stopped me because I had got my chip, my birthday chip, on a Tuesday night. And he thanked me for something that I had done, a very little trivial thing that I had done in his life. And when he passed away, I thought about that, and I was sad about his leaving. But I thought to myself, that was an amends, and I didn't know it. I can't write all of the things over there, but I can help another alcoholic. And if I help another alcoholic, I get the help I need. And we stay together in recovery one day at a time. And it's a great life. And I thank you for asking me here, um, for making me feel welcome, and thank you for listening to me tonight.